Daniel, we're in Daniel chapter two. Jesus. We are thankful that we have a man like Daniel who in this, really the most desperate of circumstances shines, thrives in a place that's evil and wicked against everything that's right. He maintains who he is. He never forgets his name. Help us. Help us to learn from this man, how he lived. May his prophetic voice echo down the corridors of history and strike a chord with our hearts. Empower us, intrigue us, provoke us to love and good works. So may we hear the voice of Daniel this morning, we pray. And I ask this in your name, amen. Amen. One of the themes of the book of Daniel is who's in control. And it's actually how the book begins. If you read verses one and two, it lays it out. Because in verse one, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar came, took Jerusalem, defeated Jehoiakim. That's verse one. Verse two says this, and God gave Jehoiakim king of Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. There's two powers right there. There's the physical reality. What we see, what we can calculate, armies, all that, that's the physical. But then verse two says, there's also another power. There's God's power. And it's a struggle. Which one are we going to give our attention to? And more than that, which one will we give our allegiance to, right? So this power struggle. And in chapter one, the power struggle there is there's these boys that are brought into Babylon and there's these forces that want to change them, convert them, Babylonize them, right? We're gonna make you after our image. Change your names, change what you eat, change your dress, change all this stuff. But in chapter one, the boys prevail. They win. They don't let it squeeze them into its image. Instead, they maintain their identity. And it's awesome, right? So they win chapter one. Now, do you think the enemy, when you win a battle, when you win something, do you think the enemy is like, man, forget it then. You're just good. See you later. Have a good life. Is that what the enemy does? Uh-uh. He comes back harder stronger. So chapter one was about diet. Are you going to be vegan or paleo? What are you going to be? Right? Vegan wins. That's just about diet. Not that high. Chapter two is their heads. The stakes go up. That's why what we do gathering together, the Bible tells us, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Even more as you see that day, we need it because we need to be reminded. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There's a, there's a verse two. There's a spiritual dimension to this. Oh yeah, I, get, I need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded that I have an enemy who's just chasing me and he's sleepless and he does not give up, right? So you've got this power struggle in chapter one. They win. Chapter two, it's bigger, it's expanded. And chapter two to me is brilliant because it brings out the three great powers. These three powers have been there for as long as there's been an earth. 
They're here today. And you will give your allegiance to one of these powers, all right? So we're gonna go through these three powers and hopefully get some wisdom on how to live life. Power number one, verse one, chapter two. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. It's so awesome. It's real simple. You're either gonna be torn limb from limb or you're gonna have great rewards. So just tell me the dream and its interpretation. It's easy. I love him. They answered. A second time, let the king tell his servants a dream and we'll show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Torn limb from limb. Power number one, King Nebuchadnezzar. Kill all the wise men. What is Daniel at this time? A wise man, right? So his head is on the platter. It's ready to go. So, Wednesday night, we'll look at this image, this dream he has. Nebuchadnezzar is called the head of gold. Here's why. Many scholars say Babylon was the very first empire ever, a power that expanded and began to control massive different peoples and just went from whatever, as far as the known world was, that was Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar was unique because he was an absolute monarch, which meant this. If Nebuchadnezzar said, kill all the wise men, what happened to all the wise men? They're all killed. There was no check. There was no balance on Nebuchadnezzar's power. Every subsequent empire had checks on them, not Nebuchadnezzar. 
He was a totalitarian dictator, a king. Do we like kings in America? No, right? We have a history with them. It's kind of how we got our start. We don't like kings. We throw their tea into a harbor. So when we become a nation, what do we do about that? We divide the government up into these branches with checks and balances because we know absolute power corrupts absolutely. Tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar will rise up unless there is a system that says you can't do that, right? So we have these checks and balances. We have this bill of rights. One of our rights is to keep our heads connected to our necks, which is really nice, right? All those things, the pursuit of happiness, those were born out of a fear of this kind of totalitarian power, right? We don't like it. But I would say this, would anyone in here want a little bit more power in their life? Anybody? Anybody want a little bit more power? Like when you see our country turning and shifting in directions that you begin to say, huh, I don't think that's the way I want my country to go. That scares me. You ever feel like you want power for that? Like I'll use it only for good because things are shifting. I would say this, things aren't shifting in America. They shifted. Let me give you one example. Maybe you're paying attention to this, but about 10 days ago in Pennsylvania, their Senate opened up for the legislative year. So this young lady who is a wife of a pastor, her name is Stephanie Borowitz. She was asked, hey, would you pray as we open up this session? Uh, and she's like, sure, no problem. Love to pray, the invocation. So she gets there, she prays in Jesus' name. And oh, there's been outrage. You can Google it. It's very fascinating to hear the outrage because like, it's crazy. How could you do that? You're a bigot to pray that way. Tom Wolf, who's the governor of Pennsylvania said this. He said, I was horrified by her prayer. Horrified. I'll tell you what's horrifying. Kids being molested women being raped, right? Exploitation of people. That's horrifying. Somebody's prayer? Dude, really? That's crazy. Her answer has been the best. As she's weathered this, she said this, what are you talking about? I didn't come to pray to you. I pray to Jesus and I don't change my prayers based on who I'm praying to because I'm not praying to you. I'm like, good for you. Brilliant. Here's what's very fascinating about that. So right after that, you have the first female Muslim senator elected in Pennsylvania. So an imam comes in and prays for her and he prays and quotes the Quran and prays in Allah's name and it's applauded. How fascinating is that, right? In Pennsylvania. Do you remember what Pennsylvania was founded on? William Penn founded in Pennsylvania on this. It's, I'm making sure that this is a state where you can have freedom to publicly declare your religion. And Jesus is called a bigot, right? Don't pray in Jesus' name. That's exclusive lookout. The shift has happened. And so part of what Daniel does for us is remind us that sometimes the most powerful church is the church where culture and government are opposed to it because they realize our one source of power is the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's all that we're gonna rely on. We're not gonna worry about the government trying to back us up or culture trying to back us up. We are gonna look to Jesus and him alone as a source of our strength. When I, so I've seen the shift and I say, praise God. 
we might see the most powerful thing ever happen in America because of that shift, right? So we can want power, but sometimes it's not the best thing. So you got Nebuchadnezzar now. He's got absolute power. He's the most powerful man on the earth, but what's the one thing he can't control? I think someone said it, it's verse one. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him, right? He can control the lives of millions of people. He can command that thousands of wise men get their heads cut off, but guess what he can't do? He can't fall asleep. Whoa, how important is sleep? Can you put a dollar amount on a good night's sleep? Anyone, no way, right? So I was talking to the Wednesday night crowd a couple of weeks ago and um, I had a birthday, turned 47 back in February and I got some gifts. My favorite gift was for my oldest daughter. She gave me a My Pillow pillow. I'm like, yeah, thank you. I'm like, can I go try it right now? I wanna go take a nap, <laughs> right? But just a couple years ago, it was chainsaws and snowboards and motorcycles. Now I'm like, a pillow, yes, thank you. Cause sleep is so precious. Right? I, I lived in a house, the school of ministry, in my 20s with 24 other men. I lived in a tiny room with four sets of bunk beds, eight people in this little room. Like you could just barely turn around in the room. It was just bunk beds. I lived on a two inch piece of mattress for a year in a sleeping bag. Never had a problem sleeping. Loud people coming in and out, just slept through it all. Now I get woken up by a barking dog in Merlin. I'm like, shut that dog up. Ah, oh, right? The one thing he can't control, this powerful, incredible man, is his sleep. Because at the end of the day, we're all just carbon-based pre-fertilizer. That's all we are. No matter how powerful or how powerless you feel, it's the great equalizer. I think a good discipline is from time to time to sit down and just write out all the things you can't control. Just write them out. Can you control the weather? No. United States economy? Yeah, probably not. Can you control your age? Anyone stopping that? No, Google's trying, but I don't think they're gonna get it, right? Right, there's so many things you can't control. You can't control building projects. Trust me on that one. I want to, I can't, right? Ugh, because on and on and on, you just can't control. You control your dog? Anyone actually control their dog? I think there's one guy that can control dogs. Caesar Milan, that's it. Everyone else, you're just playing a game with them, right? I stopped counting the number of times someone said to me, man, he doesn't really act like that as the dog's gnawing on my ankle. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, sure he doesn't. Right? We don't control much. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, is so frustrated, you know why? The more powerful you are, the more it frustrates you when you can't control something. Because you believe I got the world by the tail, then you can't go to sleep. Hmm. He is frustrated and angry and wants to kill everybody. So Daniel has worked his tail off for three years to make it into the cabinet. He's in the cabinet now and there's drastic cutbacks like on his legs and arms. So he's a little worried about it, right? That's power number one. That's the political powers of this world. Look out for them. But let me add one note on this. How does God get Nebuchadnezzar's attention? And the one thing he can't control if right now there's something that's happening to you and you can't control it, it's like a steamroll and it's coming for you and it's gonna run you over, maybe you should stop and listen because maybe that's what God's trying to do right now is get your attention. Hey, pay attention to this. 
Because if everything's going great for us and we're controlling everything, then guess what? Very infrequently do we spend time on our knees praying and seeking God. So if something's out of control right now, pray, seek, listen. Power number one, Nebuchadnezzar. There's always gonna be political power. Always gonna be it. Number two, our boy Daniel. Recap him real quick. If you're new, Daniel was a young man in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar, probably 14 years old, when Nebuchadnezzar took the city. He was ripped out of his family, out of his culture, from his homeland, transported 500 miles across the desert, planted in this refugee camp by the Chibar Canal or a sewage canal essentially coming out of Babylon. That's where he lived until he was selected to be part of a group of young men trained to serve Nebuchadnezzar. And part of that recruitment process would be he'd be turned into a eunuch because kings don't like stallions in their courts. They don't like stallions around their queens. So Daniel goes through untold horror in his life, horror. If he was here today, we'd start a GoFundMe site to set him free. That's what we do, right? He is as big of a victim as you can imagine Daniel is. And today in America, there's something happening in culture and it's this. We are now making an idol of the victim. There's this one-upmanship of being a victim. I'm more of a victim than you. I'm more, so, right? Just watch the news, watch what's happening inside of culture. It's just, I'm more of a victim than you. If anyone could play the victim card, Daniel could. Persecuted minority, right? My manhood was taken from me. Refugee, foreign land, right? No one could play it better than Daniel. Guess what Daniel never does in this book? Plays the victim card, not once. Not one time does Daniel say, poor me. He's an amazing, amazing man. So you've got Daniel in some of the worst situations you could imagine. So where does he gain his power from? All right, let's watch. Verse 13. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Knock on the door. There's the army ready to cut your head off. How would you respond to that? Southern Oregon, we'll get our gun, right? Second amendment right, right? You're at my door, you're on my property, you're dead, right? That's how we'd respond. Daniel though, amazingly, it's to me how he responds in this situation. And to me, there are three things that mark Daniel and make him great. And these three things are available to every single one of us. I call it the triple package. And to me, if you look at history, you look at people, it's three, three, all of them have these three things, these three ingredients that make them so successful. Number one, keep reading. Verse 16. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Number one is this, big God. Daniel believed in a big God. So big that he marches into the king's room and says, give me time and I'll bring you your dream and your interpretation. Something that all the other people said, impossible. No one could do this. But Daniel believed in a big God, big God. And he continually believes in a big God, whether he's faced with lions, fire, or losing his head. If God be for me, who can be against me? I will fear no evil, period. What you see with these four guys, they could play the victim card. They walk around Babylon with their heads high and their shoulders back. You know why? We're kids of the almighty God. We're kids of the almighty God. What can Babylon do to us? Nothing. Big God. Do we believe in a big God? Do we really believe in a big God? That he is for us, who can be against us? And I hope so. So maybe it's like this. A couple years ago, actually it's seven years ago because Elijah was four and he's 11 now. Uh, he asked me this. He said, dad, he's trying to figure out like me. He's like, dad, are you the boss of Edgewater? Are you the Nebuchadnezzar of the empire of Edgewater? I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't know. I demand my picture be in the paper. So I'm like, why, buddy? Why are you asking this? He's like, I want to know, do you own the office building? I'm like, well, well, why, buddy? Why are you asking this? He goes, because if you do, I want to get all my friends together. I want to clear out all the chairs. I'm going to play indoor soccer in the office. <laughs> you know what I told him? I said, buddy, you own the office at Edgewater. You own it because your God, not me, your God owns it and he's your dad. I want every four and five-year-old to go up to our new building and act like they own it. Why? Because my dad, my heavenly father owns this place. I want head high, walking around, let's clear out all the chairs and play soccer, right? We're not making a library up there where it's shh. We're making a locker room where it's celebration, where it's taping up ankle wounds, where it's getting a new play, where it's hip, hip, hooray, let's go, let's play the game. That's what we're making up there. I want every kid to feel like I own this place. A little bit of that sample of, man, walk around your life, your community, head held high because you serve a big God. Big God. Daniel, throughout this book, believes in a big God. And over and over, God shows up for him. Do we? That's ingredient number one, big God. Ingredient number two, if you keep reading, he and his boys get together and they pray all day into the night when the answer is given. Greet number two, they busted their tails. See, there's some people that say, well, since I serve such a big God, I'm just gonna sit here and if God wants to do something, let him do it. Is that what Daniel does in this book? No way. Over and over, because of his belief in a big God, he takes, take, takes steps for the big God. He goes, marches into the king's room. Hey, give me a chance to do this. I trust in a big God. So me and my boys, we're gonna pray all day and all night to make sure this happens. He busts his tail. Chapter one, he has this opportunity. Hey, you can become a massive player in Babylon. So he studies like crazy for three years and is brought into the king's room. It is, he busts his tail. I tell my kids over and over, if you will work hard, you will rule this country because it's going extinct. Work, 
Learn to bust your tail. Partner with God. It's the opposite of entitlement. It's the opposite of victim mentality. It's the opposite of, hey, don't you know who I am? It's, hey, I serve a big God and I'm gonna partner with him. I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna go for it. Daniel, throughout this book, is a hard worker. Big God, busted his tail. And then thirdly, look at verse 14. Decree went out, knock on his door, we're gonna kill you. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the captain's guard, why is the, the decree of the king so urgent? Notice how he replies here. Ingredient number three is this, self-control. Over and over, Daniel, instead of freaking out, worrying when he's facing lion's dens or a sword that's gonna cut him limb from limb or eating the wrong kind of food, over and over, Daniel practices self-control. There's a book that I think is really good by a psychologist, it's called Willpower. Let me just read you a little excerpt where he talks about self-control and how important it is in our lives. So here it is, quote, there are two qualities that correlate with success. One of them is intelligence and the other is self-control. So far, researchers haven't figured out what to do about intelligence, but they have rediscovered how to improve self-control. And the author, Roy Bauermeister, goes on to say this, People that learn self-control are more attractive, have better health, live longer lives, have lower crime rates, longer marriages. It is one of the greatest influences on your well-being more than intelligence, education, birth status, or money. Self-control. Daniel demonstrates over and over self-control. I believe self-control is one of the things that marks us as humans as opposed to animals, right? We're image bearers of God. One of the first things that God says about himself, he says this, I am long suffering. What's long suffering? Self-control. I'm not gonna come after you. I'm not gonna get angry. I'm not a cranky God that loses it every once in a while. I'm long suffering, self-control, right? Do animals have self-control? No, I'll give you an example. So number of years ago, beautiful sunny day, uh, summer, Kids are all home. My wife made up a bunch of tuna sandwiches. It was warm, so my kids were coming in the front door and going out to our patio to eat the sandwiches. Because the door was open, my golden retriever, Chloe, came inside right at the same time I came in the back door. And so my wife didn't know I was inside yet. So one of the kids is like, oh, yuck. Chloe just licked one of the tuna sandwiches. No self-control. And so my wife says, oh, that's fine. It's dad's sandwich. <laughs> So I'm like, what? I just come and she's like, oh no. So we had this discussion. I'm like, really? How many times has this happened before? How many times did I not know you're out there licking my sandwich, right? And I got so into the conversation, I forgot about it and I ate the sandwich. <laughs> That's no self-control, right? Imagine if people acted like dogs. Imagine you go out to eat today, you go to whatever restaurant you want. And as you're there, the waiter's coming and they got like their, their gnawing on your steak. Hold on. Here you go, right? Self-control is what marks us. The ability to delay gratification. The ability to say, hey, it doesn't matter what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. I can't control him. 
right? You can't control empire. Guess what? The only thing Daniel could control? Himself. I can't control that they're coming to my door to kill me. All I can do is control the way that I respond to him. And I'm gonna do it, verse 14, with prudence. I'm gonna do it with discretion. Wisely respond. And because he does, because he does that, doors are open to him. He's able to then talk to the king and get a little bit more time because he responds with prudence, because he responds with discretion. Do we have self-control? Man, I hope so. It's one of the key ingredients that make us different. Nebuchadnezzar has no self-control. He wakes up from a bad dream and guess what? He's grumpy and angry and wants to kill everybody. What is that? That's lack of self-control. Daniel, even though he's on the other side of the knife, wisdom, discretion, self-control. He's kind, he's calm, he's happy, and he gets the answer from God. Self-control. To me, this is the, the trifecta, the triple package. Big God, bust your tail, and self-control. And Daniel exemplifies these characteristics over and over. And even though he's in the most powerless situation in the world, a refugee, zero status, persecuted minority, everything's been taken from him. Even though he's powerless in our view, man, he becomes one of the most powerful men in Babylon. Big God busts his tail and knows how to control himself. Brilliant. May we have wisdom on this. These are some of the things that I'm trying to always instill into my kids these three things, come on. These things will help you succeed no matter what you do. So you got Babylon's power, political, crushing, rude. You got Daniel, brilliant, but there's a third power. And we'll look at it more on Wednesday, but let me just read this for you. It's verse 32. And it gives us the dream, the image, but it also gives us this other thing. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the whole image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This image, gold, silver, brass, iron, this image speaks of empires. It's the coming empires. We'll talk about that on Wednesday. It speaks of the might of men like Nebuchadnezzar to bend the world to their own will. That's what it is. So this is power, right? The, the elements of this image are, are the elements that empires fight over. They fight over gold and silver and brass and iron. Those are elements that empires fight over, right? Gold, that's why we have safes. Fort Knox's gold is guarding what? Gold, because gold's important. You got all these important things. But then what happens to this incredible image of empire? A little rock, doesn't even say it's big. A little stone hits it 
knocks it over, pulverizes it, so not a trace of it is found. This is why Nebuchadnezzar was so worried, right? You get this little rock. Empires fight over gold and silver. Do empires fight over little rocks? Do you worry about your little rocks? Are you out on your driveway guarding your three-quarter minus with your AR-15? Don't you dare touch my three-quarter minus. No, why? Because it's as ordinary as it comes. But what's so extraordinary about this little rock? It grows, right? Starts as a little rock and then becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth, right? There's something extraordinary about it. Do, do rocks grow? Do you water your rocks to try to get them to grow bigger? No, rocks don't grow, right? So it's both this ordinary stone, but on the other hand, it's extraordinary because it grows. So what is the rock? It's the kingdom of Jesus. So empires believe in might and power, right? Empires believe that power comes through intercontinental ballistic missiles, that power comes through armies, that power comes through might, that power comes through gold and silver. Like if you have that, you're mighty and powerful. That's empires. How does Jesus come? Ordinary, no army, no gold, no silver, no bronze, no house, no place to lay his head. Ordinary, right? But he also comes extraordinary because Jesus demonstrates a whole different way of living. Where he says, the first shall be last. Where he says, listen, in my kingdom, we don't come to be served, but we come to serve. And Jesus, who is ordinary, in fact, Isaiah says this about him, that there was nothing in Jesus that made us desire him. He wasn't the top model, right? He wasn't flowing long blonde hair with beautiful blue eyes. It's not Jesus, right? He was just as ordinary as anyone could be. They had to have Judas kiss him because he looked so ordinary. That's how ordinary Jesus is, right? Don't look for the guy with the glow in his head. It was, this guy is gonna be so ordinary, you won't recognize him, I have to kiss him. He's ordinary, but he's extraordinary because Jesus comes and demonstrates a whole different way of living life where he says, empire and that power will be dissolved when you do it my way, when you love people, when you serve them, when you, if necessary, die for your enemy. If you do it that way, empire dies. And Jesus, his life, if you know history, his life and the subsequent church, even though the Roman empire attacked the church like never before, guess what one wins? The church does. Why? Because they kept walking out the way of Jesus. Love, serve, partner with him. Die if necessary, even for the people that despitefully use you. That's the way of Jesus. And you know this? We're supposed to be like that. So interesting, in the New Testament, Peter says this, you and I are living stones. Where do you get that idea from? Maybe a rock that grew in Daniel chapter two, right? That's what we, we're little Christs. That the way that we beat empire and powers that we think, man, that is evil and that's terrible is not by big petitions or crazy political systems. The way that we beat that is through ordinary acts of love and grace and service and power where we take in the Taylor Jacksons of the world and we love them. And they end up becoming these beautiful young people that know God now and follow him. That's how. When, when wildflowers, which is one of the most, to me, incredible ministries Edgewater does, a group of ladies just said, hey, here's what we wanna do. We wanna start this group that what we do is we take women who were molested as children and we walk them out of that brokenness. 
It's one of the most brilliant. I've sat and talked with the ladies that do that. I cannot believe what they do. They are the most impacting people in our, to me, in our entire city. There's unbelievable. The toil that takes on, the virtue it sucks out of them. But man, the kingdom grows when people do stuff like that. When you go to the gospel rescue mission and love people. When you go to Joe's place and sit with a teenager who's lost everything like a Daniel and say, hey, there's hope. It's that ordinary, you and me, just ordinary people, ordinary little rocks getting out there, joining in the mission of Jesus watching it grow and grow and grow. The kingdom grows and it's beautiful and it's right. And it's the most powerful thing on earth. Eventually the kingdom of Jesus gets rid of every evil empire. They're all gone. Read the end of the book. That's what this is saying. Even the trace of them is gone. There's no evil. There's no disease. There's no Babylon coming to take your head off anymore. That's the hope we have. I'm mad. I can't live like Jesus. Yeah, me either. That's why we come to this table. Because when we come to the table, we're saying in humility, I like that. That is powerful. I want to do that. I want to partner with you. I want to believe in big God. Help me. Plant in me that love. Plant in me that faith. Do it. Feed my spirit today. And some of us, we have empires set up in our own hearts, images in our own hearts of gold and might and power. They're actually anti-Jesus. And we take communion, we say, kill that in me. Take your rock and kill that thing in me because it's controlling me and it's making me grumpy and it's making me angry and I don't wanna be that kind of person. So we come and we partake in the power. We're little Christians. We rely on him. We're living stones. Help us, grow us, transform us that we can be the ordinary rocks in Grant's past that are alive, doing extraordinary things because of your power. That's what this chapter is about. We don't wanna be Babylon. We wanna be Daniels that follow in Jesus' footsteps. So Jesus, help us this day. Help us to believe in you, big God. Help us to partner well with you. Help us to control ourselves. You've given us your spirit and part of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. I pray for any in here that have come this morning that are going back into evil places. I pray that like Daniel, they would be given your spirit that enables them to not be overcome of evil, but to overcome evil with good. To go into those places and demonstrate prudence and discretion in very tough environments. May you empower us to be like you. I pray for those that have images in their own hearts that have captured them and are torturing them and are making them grumpy and angry and they're losing sleep over those images. I pray today as we partake in your power, your broken body, your spent blood, I pray that you would take your rock and you would break that image and pulverize it. And we could walk out of here set free to live kingdom lives, to find mountains with giants on them 
and to see your kingdom grow in Grant's Pass and in our hearts as well. So feed us, we ask this day. And I pray this in your name, amen.